I've said many, many times that I learned everything from every life principle from playing football and other sports. And that is actually true. That's not an exaggeration. I discovered a lot of those principles are biblical principles as well. But one of the major principles in sports and athletics is the concept of teamwork and working together, supporting one another, uh, being available to one another in terms of the effectiveness of the functioning of a team on, on a court or on a football field or whatever. The passage we're going to look at in some ways illustrates that principle in a time of severe difficulty, severe testing. And I mentioned in the email, this passage oftentimes is ripped out of its context. And when you do that, there's always the danger of misinterpreting the passage. And you're probably familiar with this. Some people call it a parable. It's at least an illustration. It's not introduced as a parable, and it's somewhat a little bit more straightforward than parabolic, but yet it's still not didactic, if you will. It is somewhat of an illustration. If you want to call it a parable, that would be fine. So we're looking at a passage in the last part of the Olivet Discourse. There are four major parts. The setting goes all the way back to chapter 21. The focus of the book is the main future series or cluster events that deals with the nation of Israel. It is so emphasized all the way back to a time before the nation is even a nation. All the way back to Deuteronomy, that period of time is is predicted. And then certainly through the prophets and other passages in the Old Testament. Jesus gives us a summary of a period of time that is clearly defined in the book of Daniel, seven years of tribulation. What ends that is the coming of the Lord. We've spent a lot of time on that. That's in chapter 24, 29 through 31. So Jesus describes his own coming. We're in the fourth section, applications. In other words, how should we respond to the truths concerning these future events? Now, the applications are primarily for the disciples in the first century. That's a primary application. How are they to respond? They're Jewish young people or men, and they are to respond to certain things that are going to happen in their time frame, but there's also a primary application to the people that will be involved in the events that Jesus just described. Now, we, just like any passage of Scripture, because it's inspired, we can apply it as well, but it's a secondary application. And a lot of expositors don't make that clear, and sometimes might even even distort the passage. But some of the applications that are drawn are valid, they're just out of context. So we're going to look at a passage, and this is the last paragraph, you might say, or the last portion of the Olivet Discourse. We won't finish it today, so I'm not going to try to perform any miracles. And in that, in these applications, we have applications for the second coming. That's the last part of chapter 24. And the applications in chapter 25 pertain to a millennial kingdom that will take place after the second coming. Jesus doesn't describe it. 
He just applies it because he knows he's speaking to people that understand what happens when the Messiah arrives. When the Messiah arrives, he will establish this kingdom, this thousand-year reign. Now, they may not know that it's a thousand years yet, but they know that it's a clearly defined, very specific period of time described in great detail in the Old Testament. We spent two weeks looking at some of those passages to give you an idea, and the book of Revelation specifies that it's a thousand years. That's why we call it a millennium. But the disciples would be familiar with the word kingdom, a particular period of time. So these parables, three of them, you might say, or at least two in an illustration, pertain, as I developed from verse 1 and other passages we're going to see again, the first passage we'll look at today refers to that period of time called the kingdom. So he doesn't describe it. The disciples assume that it'll happen because Jesus predicts the coming of himself or the Messiah, and that's what Jewish people expected. Instead, he just applies it. But it is a event that will take place after he returns. So we're looking at applications for the kingdom. We looked at the two parables. Both of them pertain to the nation of Israel. That's the focus of eschatology. Eschatology is Jewish. We think in terms of the church. We think in terms of you and I. You know, it's all about us, right? Well, eschatology is about Israel. And eschatology pertaining to the church fits into the overall eschatology, the nation of Israel. Which I've been emphasizing that throughout. Well, that's the case as well. So these two parables pertain to Israel. And I gave you reasons for that. The parable, if you want to call it that, that we're looking at deals with the nations. In other words, people that are not Jewish, not part of the nation of Israel, which would include most of us. So, the nations, and it would include the United States. There's going to be an accounting. Not as an, an entity of the United States, but I think what's in view, and I'll try to mention that when we get to the proper verse there. I think he's dealing with individuals that come out of the nations. And there's going to be two particular groups. So, that's what we're going to look at. I'm going to mainly introduce it today, get into a little bit of the early verses, and then we'll complete it next week. Next week will be the final session, Lord willing, on the Alva Discourse, and it's the end of this grace group period as well. So there'll be a break after that, and I don't even know when the next one is. So, let's start talking about nations. This is an important concept in Scripture. National entities, they don't just occur. In other words, nations are part of a bigger plan of God. In fact, we are very familiar with at least two programs that God has established and that God, in fact, is even orchestrating with two distinct peoples. All right? First of all, in the Old Testament, the primary emphasis is God's people that he had called to himself, that he formed himself, that is called the nation of Israel. They are the focus of all that God is doing on planet Earth. Make sense? This is not only developed in the Old Testament, but it's prophesied concerning even future things. This is the focus of what God is doing on the planet. Now, there's another entity 
that uh, came about as a result of God's people finally and ultimately rejecting their God. In other words, rejecting their Messiah. In the first century, Jesus was crucified and rejected, not just by Jewish people, but Gentiles as well. The Roman Empire would have crucified him even if the nation had responded. So no one, in fact, you and I put him on the cross because all of us are sinners as well. So there's a second entity or a second group you might call. It's not a nation. Israel is a national entity. There's a distinction. There's a difference. But there's a different group called the church, ecclesia in the Greek text. The church is made up of both Jews and non-Jews. We call that Gentiles. God has united them into a body that is called the body of Christ. That is a unique entity, and God is going to deal with that entity, and he has a program for the church. It's kind of in between what God is doing with the nation of Israel. After he has done his work amongst what is called the ecclesia, I think the Bible says that he will take the church out, we call that the rapture, and then that starts a a clock, if you will, with the nation of Israel, where God is going to complete all that he has designed and all he has intended for them. And that begins after this period of time called the rapture, or after the church age. So we're dealing with that time frame. But there is also, kind of on a secondary basis, but you can see development throughout the Old Testament, and pertaining to things even in the future, that pertain to the nations, the passage we're looking at today, deals with this other entity called the nations. In fact, the Greek word, and the Hebrew word as well, the Greek word ethne, that can be translated Gentiles. It can be translated nations. And in fact, in the thinking, biblical thinking, Jewish thinking, it's basically the same. In, in other words, anyone non-Jewish is a Gentile. And they can come from a variety of ethnic backgrounds, ethnic groups, national groups, etc. So they can come from the nations. That's what's in view here. God has a program for them as well and a design. So let me give you a little introduction and some background. And this will help you to understand why this parable is very important in this program that God has for the nations, or you might say Gentiles, of whom most of us are a part. Now, God has called us out of the nations and has put us into this body of Christ called the church so that this does not affect us because it deals with the paradigm after the church. And that is omitted in a lot of expositions of this passage. Does that make sense? So that's the context. All of you are familiar with that. We've been looking at it. So let me give you a foundation, in other words, a biblical kind of parameters of God dealing with the nations, and it'll put the context for the passage that we're looking at today. First of all, the nations are rooted in God's purposes. In other words, they didn't just come about by accident, now, the world thinks in terms of evolution and kind of a secular view of the nations is that mankind evolved into families, into social groups, into ethnic groups, and eventually evolved into nations that we see today. That's not true. And that's not true historically, even. 
But the nations are rooted in the purposes of God. And this is evident because God deals with the nations throughout Scripture. He deals with the nation of Israel as his people because he created them. But national groups actually are part of a plan. And you see hints of that all the way back to Genesis 1.28 where it talks about the purpose of mankind. Mankind is to scatter all over the, the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. Now, it doesn't state anything about nations, but as part of that, God's intent that eventually when mankind is large enough, there will be different national and even ethnic groups that will do the subduing and the ruling. So it's rooted in Genesis 1, verse 28. Secondly, nations come about in Genesis chapter 11. That's the first mention, the first evident or visible manifestation of nations. And by the way, there is no secular equivalent to what we have in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel and where nations come from. And as a result, it's a result of God judging mankind because God intended that man spread and at Babel, man deliberately organizes. In fact, we have the beginning of the world system. The world system can be defined as mankind organized, raising its fist up against God and rejecting what God has said, rejecting his word, rejecting his son, etc. That began at Babel. And because God intended that peoples scatter, in fact, that's evident from Genesis 11, verse 9 verses there, and mankind raises his fist and says, no, we are going to do something lest we be scattered. In other words, in defiance of what God said. So the nations came about as a result of a divine intervention, a divine judgment on mankind that confused the languages so that man now cannot communicate. In other words, there's a group of people he can communicate with, so they gather together because they can communicate, and others they cannot, and now God is dividing them, and that's where the nations come about. And that was God's intent from the beginning, but he does it by divine judgment. So it doesn't come from man. The nations are not man's invention, man's desire. It's God's intent. And I think, if you look at the total picture... God desires national entities as something of a restraining force, if you will, to restrain the sin of mankind. There are a lot of things in the plan of God where he restrains sin. National entities does that. Every time there has been world government, it has always been a perversion. It has always been anti-God. It has always been oppressive. So globalism is not part of God's plan apart from him being king. So national entities, I believe, are designed to restrain. In other words, nations balance each other out, compete with one another and balance them out, distribute resources such that no one has ultimate power and therefore ultimate ability to oppress and to suppress the word of God. So result of God's judgment and the next principle, I think, is captured in the New Testament when Paul gives a philosophy of history in Acts chapter 17. Verse 26, he made. It begins with God creating all things. 
Now, if that's not clear, back up to verse 24, where he refers to creation again. Now, he's dealing with philosophers at Athens, and he's explaining to them that they have a faulty worldview, that has a faulty view of history, and now he's going to set them straight and give them a biblical or a worldview from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, he made from one man, Adam and Eve, from one man, every nation of mankind. So there's a unity. And in fact, it's probably not biblical to refer to races, because there's only one race. Because all descend from one man. There's a unity. And that unity, this is important, biblically, theologically, because one man means all of us are related to Adam, all of us are related to the sin of Adam, all of us are in need of a Savior, just as Adam and all of humanity. So there's a unity there. From one man, every nation of mankind, so nations come as a result of descendants coming from Adam and Eve, and eventually as a result of the flood through the family of Noah. So we're all related to Noah, and we're all related to one another. So God is the one that initiated it, God has created it, this is his design, and he designed it that these mankind to live on the face of the earth, and notice... Who does the having determined refer to? God. In other words, God has a plan. God has certain things that he has instituted. God is working towards certain goals that he's going to accomplish. This passage that we're going to look at deals with some of the end goals that God has for all of mankind. But he has determined it. And because the Bible teaches that he is sovereign, in other words, has it all under control, it will come about. And we can be assured of that, even though it's even future from our time. Having determined their appointed times, in other words, nations have a certain time frame, or shelf life, you might even say, and they last only within the specifications of God himself. Now, it's possible, I hate to say it, but our nation is not an exception. Our nation is not going to exist into eternity. It may exist into the uh, tribulation period. We don't know if it's close, but there's no guarantees. And we may be seeing, in the corruption that we see around us, the collapse of this nation as well. We have no guarantees of that. We don't have a covenant like Israel does with God. So, God has determined their appointed times. There's only times that God permits certain nations. And not only that, but their boundaries. Boundaries are important. Borders are important. Walls are important. <laughs> appointed times and their boundaries of their habitation. And then verse 27, there's a purpose for all of this. That environments may be created that mankind may seek after himself, after God. See that? And we could expand that, but I'm just giving you a background. We've looked at this before, by the way. So, back to our foundation here. Not only are nations rooted in God's purposes, not only are they a result of God's judgment, that's Genesis 11, Babel, Babel experience, confusing of the languages, resulting in nation. But thirdly, from the Acts 17 passage, and by the way, you have hints of this, Throughout Scripture, the book of Daniel is clear. There's other passages as well. The nations are under the sovereign control of God. He has determined certain things concerning all nations. Make sense? 
So nations are not autonomous. They're not independent. They can't function apart from the sovereign hand of God. And whatever happens, it's within the permissive will of God. And number four is also from Acts. There's a purpose for all nations, including the North Koreas, including the Irans, including the Chinas. God, within all of those entities, is preserving opportunities for people to come to know him. And sometimes, through the pressures of oppressive governments, people have no alternative than to turn to God, because he's the only one that can give relief from that. So, the purpose of that. And, another thing that is developed as we get through Scripture, particularly Genesis chapter 12, after chapter 11, the next chapter, we have a covenant that God enters into with Abraham and his descendants before they are even a nation, before Abraham even has one child. God enters into covenant with Abraham, but it's also with his descendants. And there are several things in there, but one of them deals with the nations. In other words, all of the other nations are going to be blessed or cursed depending on their relationship with Israel. And we, you can see that historically. Nations are blessed, and it's unfortunate that we have an administration right now that is antagonistic to Israel. So there are consequences to that. All right? So if a nation desires blessing, then they will care for, they will minister to, they will protect the nation of Israel, they will be favorable to the nation of Israel. And if they're not, their appointed time may be short-lived. So it's not materialism, it's not prosperity, it's not riches that bless a nation. It is determined, and it's not self-effort, it's determined on the basis of whether a nation treats the nation of Israel in the way that God has specified in the Old Testament. And for the nation of Israel, when the nation of Israel steps out of line, God will use even ungodly, and in some cases the most ungodly of nations, to discipline the nation of Israel. He used Egypt to form them. Egypt was oppressive. To form them in the womb of Egypt. He used the Assyrians to take and to scatter the northern kingdom. And they were a brutal culture, a brutal people. He used the Babylonians to ultimately end the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And he's used other nations throughout their history to discipline them. So when Jews experience persecution, yes, it's persecution, yes, it's suffering, yes, it's severe, but it is also part of a discipline that God is doing. And God is going to use the tribulation period and the nations of the tribulation period to discipline the nation of Israel and bring them to a point of there's no other alternative other than accepting the Messiah. There's going to be a great turning during that period of time. The greatest revival the world will ever see. And it'll start with the nation of Israel. So there's discipline for the nation of Israel. So this is kind of the parameters of the nation biblically. History of Israel. We're living in a time that's called the times of the Gentiles. After the destruction of the nation of Israel, they have an origin, they emerge as a people. This is all world history, by the way, on one slide, from eternity to eternity. The origin of Israel, that's Genesis. They emerge, beginning in the book of Exodus, and they become a full-fledged nation by the book of Joshua. So we have a lot of books in there, most of the Pentateuch, book of Joshua, the emerging of the nation of Israel. 
Now they're a full-fledged nation. God intended a kingdom. Why? Genesis 1.28, he wants man to rule. And now he has given Israel the responsibility of ruling. And under David and Solomon, they rule the world. But because kings are sinful, because mankind is sinful, that kingdom collapsed. God used nations to discipline them. And that began, with the Babylonian captivity, that began the times of the Gentiles. Jesus uses that little phrase in the Olivet Discourse in Luke's account. calls the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles are going to extend into that seven-year period, and the times of the Gentiles won't end until that arrow there, at the end there, that's the second coming. And when he comes, he ends the times of the Gentiles. So there emerge, the kingdom collapses, there's a restoration in order to prepare for the coming of Messiah, but Messiah was rejected. So in the times of the Gentiles, the Gentiles have dominated the world and dominated the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel has been under the thumb of Gentiles ever since the Babylonian captivity and even before. So this is world history. And then when Jesus comes, he will free the nation of Israel. That's what they expected in the first century. It didn't happen. And many Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah because they expected him to deliver them from Rome. So, discipline. And then seven, in the age in which we are living in, who are we to preach the gospel to? All nations. All nations. All ethne. Same word. All right? All Gentiles. In this case, all including Israel. All including Israel, in this case. All nations. So when we present the gospel, we, we don't think, well, are you Jewish? You know, we don't distinguish. Are, are you whatever, whatever you are? To all nations. That's the great commission, if you will. And that is our period of time. So God has not rejected the nations there's still opportunity for them to come into a saving relationship. And you and I, most of us that are non-Jewish, uh, we have responded to that gospel, and we have been called out of the nations to be a part of God's plan in terms of the church. Does that make sense? Now, that gets us to the age after the church age. The gospel is still preached, Opportunity to come know, know the Lord is still there, and we'll see that from this parable. Now, this is a parable of judgment. In other words, this is one of the final things. In fact, this is one of the last things preceding the millennial kingdom. And it's a parable of judgment, evaluation, separating out. That's what judgment is, a separating out of evil that destroys what God wants to save or preserve. And this is an example of judgment. And judgment in the Bible is certain, because God is sovereign. There will be judgment in the future. Every person will have to stand and give an account before God in different stages. And this is one of those stages. We all will give an account. Whether or not we accepted God's provision of salvation... And in our age, that provision, well, in every age, it's through the Savior, the one that made provision for sin. And if we have trusted in him, then we receive his salvation. And we're going to give an account of whether we have trusted him or not. 
Now, that's future. But there's judgment, and it's certain, and there's a lot of reasons. Even from the human perspective, even from the personal perspective, everyone expects judgment. You can see this in little children. What do children do? You you know, you have uh, five slices of, uh, of a peach on one child, and the other child gets only four. What do you get? It's not fair. <laughs> he got five. I only got four. We have a sense within us, a sense of equity, a sense of justice, a sense of fairness. That's ingrained in us. All of us yearn for it and desire it. Now, in this world, there is no fairness. There is no equity. There is no justice. So in this world, we will suffer injustice but there comes a time when God brings an end to this world and then begins to effect justice. Unfortunately, all of us fall short of the glory of God and all of us are deserving of condemnation. And by the way, that's a major theme of the book of Romans that we'll look at. The concept of condemnation. It's by God's grace, trusting in what he has provided, that we can escape that judgment. But we all anticipate it, except when it comes to us. We want our neighbors to suffer judgment, but us, uh, well, it's not that bad, right? We're, we're all right. Uh, but there is an expectation. Secondly, there's a pattern of the past. God has judged in the past. We see that in the garden. That's a, there was a judgment. The Genesis flood, there was a judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, there was a judgment. The nation of Israel was destroyed. That was a judgment. And the ultimate judgment came in the first century. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ because he was judged for our sin. Our sin was placed on him and the judgment that we deserve, Jesus took on himself. So we have a pattern of the past. That's the ultimate judgment. And that's the only escape when we trust that what he did for us uh, was applicable and that we receive that mercy, if you will, that grace, trusting in Jesus Christ. So it's a pattern of the past, and there's going to be future judgments as well. In fact, different stages in the future. So we can be certain of the future because of the past. Thirdly, there's the warnings of God's word throughout. And by the way, the one that speaks of judgment in the New Testament more than any other is whom? What? <laughs> that was a question. Question mark after that. The one in the New Testament that speaks more of judgment than anyone else, obviously, is Jesus Christ. Judgment and eternal damnation. He speaks of it more than anyone else. But uh, somebody look these up. Uh, who's got numbers 3223? He wants to do that one. David, somebody get uh, Romans. You want to do that one? Romans 118, also 2-9. First Corinthians, you got it, Jenny? First Corinthians 10. You got Numbers 32-23, David. These are just a few. There are literally hundreds of passages that warn concerning future judgment. Now, some are more uh, immediate, and some are ultimate. Read this one. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you up. Okay. Now, he's talking to the nation of Israel. But there's a principle there that sin calls for judgment, and our sin will find us out. We will not escape 
the judgment of God. Romans 1.18, now this is in the present tense. So there's a sense in which God judges on an ongoing, everyday sense. Jim's got that one, Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now we're going to spend an entire Sunday on that verse when we get to the book of Romans. That might be in a year or so from now, but... But that is the beginning of the theological section in the book of Romans, and it begins with the judgment of God. Now, it's present tense, so we'll have to, we'll look at all of the ins and outs of that verse, but it gives us the certainty of judgment. Now, there's also a future sense, that's Romans 2.9, you got that one? There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, Jew first, and also the Greek. Uh, read it again. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Jew. Okay, for every human being. Certainty of judgment, no one will escape. There is an escape. It's only through Jesus Christ. It's not through the church. It's not through good works. It's not through anything you can accomplish. It's only by trusting in him. 1 Corinthians 10, another New Testament passage, verse 11 and 12. Jenny? Now these things happen to them at the temple. Now he's talking about the Israelites during the wilderness, but notice it's an example for church age believers. Written for our instruction upon the Lord. Okay. There's the certainty of God dealing with sin. And this, he has done it throughout history, and he's going to deal with it in a final way in the future. And also, we won't look at them, but there are many in the Old Testament, the prophecies of the prophets. Prophecy of the prophets. Did you catch the alliteration? Expectations of everyone, EE, pattern of the past, PP, warnings of the word, WW. Prophecies of the Prophets. <laughs> Takes hours and hours. Okay, so all sin known by an omniscient God. In other words, nothing escapes his knowledge. He knows all things. He sees all things. Things that even don't take place, he knows. He knows everything. Everything real, everything possible. He's omniscient, including sin. And since he knows all, he can deal with all, and we might say all sin must be punished in order to maintain a righteous God. He's the righteous judge, so we can be certain of it. The passage that we're looking at, and the one that we'll look at next week, deals with a particular judgment that is yet future, dealing with particular peoples. So let's get into the passage and see how far we can get, and then we'll pick up here next week and, Lord willing, complete complete passage. Yeah, that's just an introduction. Sorry about that. So chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, uh, we can divide it into several parts. And by the way, on the outline sheet, I gave you there kind of a, the reminder of the background to the nations. And the next part here is the return of the king. So we... I just point this out because it doesn't quite correspond A, B, C on your outline. So the return of the king, uh, 31 to 33. Now, keep the 
context in mind. We're talking about a future time when the Messiah returns, and it alludes to that, and it also alludes to the kingdom. When he comes, there's going to be a kingdom. So verse 31, when, there's the time frame, there's the occasion, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's his return, the second coming of Jesus. The Son of Man is his favorite title for himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man for at least two reasons. And I think most of you know the reasons. The first reason is why? Pardon me? He identifies with humanity. He is fully human. Now, he is fully God, but he's also fully human. So he identifies himself as the Son of Man, to identify with mankind and to point out his humanity. There's a second, more, even more important reason why he uses that. And all you Jews know, right? For because of his redemption. Uh, well, it's related to his humanity, but there's a very definite reason why he calls himself Son of Man. Think in terms... Absolutely, that's it. He is identifying himself with the Son of Man, primarily with Daniel's passage in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where there are two personages in that vision. There's the Ancient of Days, who is the Father. Now, he's not identified in that passage as Father. We get that, you know, from the New Testament concept. And what? The Son of Man, a second personage. That Son of Man is Messiah. Or, from the New Testament perspective, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So he's identifying himself, as Mary Lee points out, to a messianic passage and identifying himself as the Messiah. He could more clearly say, I am not just the Son of Man in terms of humanity, but I am the Messiah. In other words, when the Messiah comes in his glory, the resurrected Jesus Christ, that's his glory, when he returns, that's described, that we looked at in chapter 24, beginning verse 29 through 31, that glorious coming. We spent, what, five weeks on that. That's the occasion. There's going to be certain things that take place. And what's going to happen here, we have the occasion of this passage is the second coming. And all the angels with him. That refers back to that verse 31 in chapter 24. It specifies all the angels return. And there's others that are gathered as well. Now, it's not so clear in Matthew, but we have other passages that make it clear that we will come back with him after we are raptured. But Jesus is spelling out the angels, because the angels are going to have a special part in that coming. And we could view the angels actually as the agents of his judgment. He's going to utilize angels. And this is very clear in the book of Revelation. Most of the judgments in the book of Revelation are, are orchestrated through the agency of angels. Let's look up this one passage. Somebody get it, Second Thessalonians 1. And he's speaking of humanity here, but notice the agency of angels in that passage. Who's got it? Connie's got it. Okay. We'll get to, yeah. Let, let me get to the next. Well, go ahead and read. You got it? First Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians 1, 7, 
and 8. Now he's talking about Christians who are being persecuted to give them assurance that God is going to deal. They're, they're experiencing injustice, suffering, persecution, but rest assured, God is going to bring justice. Go ahead. Reveal from heaven, what's that? Second coming. Okay, there's the angels, and they're coming in flaming fire. Both Jesus and the angels in flaming fire. That's a picture of the judgment that is coming at his coming. With angels. Got that? Keep reading. Okay, and that's just one passage. You can add that to the list of the certainty of judgment as well. So we have the agents, and then he will, on that occasion, at his coming, he will sit on his glorious throne. What is that? Bema seat. Bema seat, well, even beyond the Bema seat, but his judgment seat in a broader sense. Is that quite right? No. No. No, this is at the beginning of the kingdom. Oh, okay. He will sit on his glorious throne. Now, he's going to sit on that throne, not just as king to rule, but he's going to sit on that throne to judge, subdue, if you will. King and judge. So, it's a ruling throne, but it is also a judgmental throne. And that is at his coming. That is the occasion of the judgment of the nations. Now, Israel is going to be judged just prior to that, because we just saw that in the first 30 verses of Matthew chapter 24. We looked at that in the last couple of weeks. Okay? So we have the occasion, second coming, the agents are angels, and by the way, who else might be involved based on another New Testament passage? Who might be other agents? The church, believers. What passage? Does anybody remember that one? What book? First Corinthians, what chapter? Six. First three or four verses there. First Corinthians six, one through three. Where we will judge. So we may come with him and angels may give us little secondary tasks. So the people being judged then are the nation. In this context. Right. Now, you and I, have, or believers in the church age, have already experienced the time before the Bema. So we have different stages of these judgments. The Bema, it doesn't specify a time, because eschatology is Jewish, we don't have a time frame. But more than likely, it fits in probably shortly after the rapture, or maybe sometime during that seven-year period. Might as well get it done, get it over with right after, right after the rapture. That makes sense, because yeah. the church has been gathered. Yes, right. It doesn't specify anyway, anywhere, but that's the logical place. Anyway, we may be a part. And then thirdly, we have authority from a ruling throne to judge. That's in that passage. And the judge is who? The Son of Man, the one that comes. Somebody look up John 5.22. Got it? John 5.22. Jenny. Okay, read it again. Get that? Who's got all authority to judge? Read it again. Son. Read it again. Loud. All judgment. And, and he got, Jesus got that after resurrection. Yes. Yes. Right. 
Yeah, in fact, he kind of alludes to that in the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. And then he encourages us to go out under his authority to preach the gospel to the all nations. And then verse 32, so that's the opening verse there, 32, and we'll end in verse 33. Let's look at it. All the nations, there you go, there's ethne. You could translate it, all the Gentiles. But I think what's specific are nations. Now, he's not going to say, well, North Korea, you're going to be the goats. United States, you're the sheep. That, 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 I don't think that's in view. There's some details in the passage that indicate that he's going to deal with individuals within the nations, amongst the nations, individuals amongst the nations. So the individual sheep and the individual goats are not individual nations, they're individual personages within the Gentiles or within the nations. Does that make sense? Okay. All the nations will be gathered before him. All the Gentiles, all the ethne. In the Hebrew, what is the Hebrew word? Those of you that know? Goyim. Goyim. So the subjects are Gentile nations or Gentiles, you might even say. Or you might say non-Jewish people. Because they're already, the Jewish people are already dealt with in the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. And this is living Israel. These are the ones that survived the great tribulation. These are the Gentiles that survived in mortal bodies the great tribulation. They will stand before the Lord at the establishment or before the establishment of the millennial kingdom. And I'll just give you a heads up ahead of time. Next week we'll try to show that those that are sheep, in other words, those that are on the right hand, those that are on the right, they're conservative, they're on the right, right? <laughs> Those on the right, they're righteous, they're called righteous. In other words, they have received a, a right standing before God, now it's on the same basis as you and I, based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, they will enter into the kingdom and be a part of the kingdom. The others will be cast out. We'll see that next time. But the subjects are Gentile nations. So all nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them. This is very important. This illustrates what judgment is all about. Judgment is a separating out, a separating of that that is evil and that that destroys from that that God desires to save or that God desires to preserve. So he's separating out sheep from goats, believers from unbelievers. Evil from the righteous. That's what, that's the essence of judgment. And you can see that throughout history at the Genesis flood. God removed all of humanity and destroyed them because none of them were righteous. None of them were believers. None of them were granted righteousness as a result of their belief. So he will separate them from one another. And here's the imagery or the illustration as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Now that's kind of first century, unless you're a sheep herder today. At night, the goats need a little bit more protection. They don't have the wool that the sheep have. Sheep are able to endure greater temperature or temperature variations. God gave them a coat, if you will. The goats need more protection, and at night they're separated out. And so just as a shepherd does that, kind of illustrating 
There's going to be another separating in this context. It's a separating of evil from righteousness. So as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on the right, because they're conservative, right? And the goats on the left, because they're non-conservative. <laughs> I'm being facetious, as you know. So this is the separating. And what we have is judgment. It's a separating of evil. Separating out. So, the correspondence here, in other words, in this illustration, this is what corresponds. The shepherd, the one that does the separating, and or the king, you might say, that comes in his glory, is the Messiah. That's the analogy that he's painting here. Secondly, the sheep are Gentile believers. We'll see that as we progress through. They're called righteous. In other words, they as a result of trusting in the Messiah, they have a right standing before God. That's what righteous means. They are, uh, what's the word, imputed righteousness. Gentile believers. That would lead the goats. The goats are a picture of what? Gentile unbelievers. Remember, the context is the nations. So these are Gentile unbelievers. See the correspondence? And during the week you can... Fill in all the details on the rest of the parable there. So at the end of the age, during this seven-year period of time, there is going to be a restoration of the nation of Israel. In other words, the nation as a whole, not every single one, but as a whole, we've looked at this, is going to trust in Jesus as Messiah. We missed Jesus as Messiah in the first century, they will trust in him during that seven-year period. In fact, that's the purpose of that seven-year period of time. But also, not just Jews, but people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Revelation 7, 9. Gentiles are converted. Jews and Gentiles. The greatest revival the world has ever seen will be in the future. And it's during that seven-year period of time... And then, at the second coming, there is an accounting. There is a judgment. There is a separating. That's the context of this passage. Now, we're going to see, and we'll conclude with this slide here, we're going to see that that separating is going to result in a participation in the kingdom that Jesus is establishing at his coming. So... This kind of gives you the idea that even in the kingdom, there are nations. Globalism is not part of God's plan. In fact, it's opposition to God's plan. And if we went further, or this completes your foundation of the nations, there are nations, you might even say there's ethnicity or ethnic identification, even in eternity. And you can see that in Revelation 22 and I think 9, uh, 21 even but certainly 22. Make sense? So it's kind of a broad world picture, worldwide historical picture of God's plan for the nations. And what we're looking at is a particular event that will take place in terms of judgment of the nations. Who wants to close for us? Mary Lee? Father, thank you for including us in your plan. Spirit, thank you for calling us and drawing us. Thank you that we are not required to do works to achieve things, but we are required 
to have a heart that sees you. Thank you for that. I pray that you revealing yourself to each one of us through this week. We did this week. Jesus, Amen. Amen.